good Wednesday morning. Today we have a special podcast that we're slipping in so that you guys can be aware of the Augustine College Summer Conference 2023. The dates for this event are Sunday, May 28th through Saturday, June 3rd. And for more information on this event, you can visit augustinecollege.org, which everything for this will be linked down below. Now we're gonna hear from Dr. John Patrick as he tells you about the event to see if it is gonna be something that you would want to attend. Well, good morning, folks. Um, this is a little bit of blatant advertising, but I'm not trying to sell you something you wouldn't enjoy because I know you would. Um, it's unique. I know of no other conference like it. And it, it wasn't originally our idea. It was a gift, as the whole Augustine College program was. So I need to give you a little bit of background to that. Uh, Augustine College had its origins in uh, the very late 80s, um, but it didn't come into uh, activity until the late 90s. It needs an incubation period. But I was like many uh, reasonably smart kids who go off and get professional training and then do science that came from a, a very biblical background, a Bible-believing church and a Bible-believing home. And I never disbelieved the story. But I went off and, as usual, within weeks of arriving in university, you're turned into a reductionist without knowing what the word means. And with the people who do it to you, not knowing what they're doing, happened to me. And so I divided my life into two, so to speak. There was the reductionistic world of science, and I still went to church for a good five or six years um, and heard great preachers. But the two worlds didn't mesh and they were not going to for quite a while. And I lost my way more or less completely during residency because you have no time for anything except medicine, no fellowship, and that's very dangerous. As an aside, if you're sending your kids to university at the moment, there's one thing you should do for certain is get them to think about a little group of people they would be willing to have call them one at least once a week. Uh, basically to ask them three questions. Do you still read your Bible? Are you still praying? Have you just lied to me? Uh, because university will deprive them of their their mind, their faith, and their virginity in random order in the first year, in most cases, in one way or another. That's bad news. Now, I went along the academic career and eventually ended up in Ottawa, and uh, God got to work on me at about that time. All sorts of pressures from different directions came at me and eventually led to what I do now. But one of the first ones was being shunted off to uh, Africa for a year to help some missionaries with the problem of malnutrition, a subject of which I have some expertise. And... Uh, when I came back, uh, I uh, immediately annoyed the medical students because at the beginning, on the flight out to Africa, I had read Alan Bloom's Closing the American Mind, and I couldn't believe what he was saying. Particularly, here's a, an atheist radical homosexual who uh, preyed on his students, uh, but was a superb teacher of Greek philosophy. Uh, and he was complaining that the students coming to his class in the University of Chicago in the, in the mid-80s were, in fact, ignorant. And he was appalled that 
he couldn't use all the metaphors that he had used with impunity before knowing the students would understand. And of course, those metaphors were, were biblical. That's where most of our metaphors that matter come from, the Jews and the Christians. And uh, so he wrote The Closing of the American Mind. And my take on it is that he's complaining about the, the loss of biblical literacy in the Western world and therefore the loss of understanding of our own selves and our own society. So uh, somehow in a, the first biochemistry lecture I gave after I got back from Africa, uh, I said to the, the students, if Alan Bloom is right, you're an ignorant bunch. Now, if you said that today, there'd be a riot immediately, but this was 1987 or thereabouts, and uh, students were still relatively polite. But... Uh, after the lecture, about 20 of them came and demanded an apology. They said, you've no right to call us ignorant. You don't know whether we're ignorant. I said, it wasn't me that said it. It was Alan Bloom. So it's not for me to apologize. What I would like to do is find out whether he's right. Why don't we do the experiment? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, uh, he said, my reading of his book is that without the metaphors of the Bible, you cannot understand yourself, and certainly you can't understand Shakespeare. Now, well, let's see how good you are at biblical literacy. You all think Gandhi's a great guy? He said the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest piece of writing he ever read at one point. So tell me how it starts and what he says. And of course they couldn't. Nothing. And that led to Agnostics Anonymous. But it also led to me walking away and realizing that I couldn't actually do with our Lord's longest sermon what I could do with most of the topics I taught in university, namely give the lecture without any notes. Um, but I couldn't do the Sermon on the Mount without notes. Well, that was not acceptable. I wasn't taking something of eternal significance as seriously as things of transient significance. So I learned it by heart. And I can honestly say it changed my life. Uh, Pretty well, every 24 hours I will have the Sermon on my Mount, the Sermon on the Mount in some section in my head. Uh, and that's very good for my head. So uh, then uh, I was asked to give a, do a series of adult Sunday school classes in what I thought was a liberal church, but it wasn't, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And after the first one, uh, I met... Uh, my best friend in the university, uh, Graham Hunter, who's a, a retired professor of philosophy now, and he said, he shook my hand vigorously. He's sort of about six foot five and was a heavyweight boxer when he was at university. Um, but uh, he, uh, he said, I enjoyed that. Can we have lunch together? And so we started having lunch together and complaining about the state of the university and the state of education. This was uh, 30, 40 years ago now. Um, so after a little bit, we realized that complaining was not an altogether defensible attitude for Christians. And we said, well, there must be others in the university who feel the same way. And we found a few. And that was the genesis of uh, Augustine College, because we had about half a dozen, half a dozen of us who'd been put together by providence. So it was very unlikely, as I now know, to have 
half a dozen people like this in one university, all senior professors at the same time. So one was David Jeffrey, who's just retired from Baylor, who I think was probably the best evangelical intellect on the continent. Uh, another was Ernest Kaparos, who was John Paul II's canon lawyer. Another was Dominic Manganiello, who was an expert on Dante, Graham Hunter, myself, another stage Edith Humphrey, who's now retired from teaching Presbyterians how to talk about sexuality. Um, it was a remarkable group. And so we invited them to join us, and that turned into a breakfast meeting. And that shortly, without any paper trail or any advertising, we'd have between 20 and 30 people to breakfast every week. Graduate students, people from Parliament Hill, even the CBC turned up on occasions. Uh, and homeschooling mums and dads found out about us, and they persuaded us that we needed to do something about it, and the graduate students agreed. And we said, well, what's needed is an honest course about the intellectual history of the Western world, which will necessarily, therefore, say the fundamental building blocks of Western culture are Jewish and Christian thought modified and Greek thought modified by the church. Uh, Greeks and Jews modified by the church. Uh, little inputs from elsewhere. The secularists can't claim to have done this. They didn't. They built on it, and they're wrecking it. So, um, but we can't do that in the university because uh, the first question they will ask is how many women appear as fundamental to this process, and the answer is not very many because all societies in the world uh, and uh, the state of the world at the time where having six, you need six boys to run in a, a hundred acres, uh, there was no question as to what everybody's duties were, and they got on with it by and large. And only the men had a little bit of time to think in some cases, especially if they went off to a monastery or something like that. So uh, we can't do it. But they persuaded us to do it in a church basement. And we've been doing that since 1997. Now, we haven't done it this year because of COVID, which closed us down. And I don't know whether. We're ever going to get over that. We're going to see whether we get enough students this coming year to justify uh, thinking that it can continue. It would be very sad if it doesn't because there's a wonderful outcome. Uh, the students who take that course are very unlikely to lose their faith when they go to university. I'm talking about 80% of them will still be going to church when they come out of university. That's an extraordinary figure. Most pastors and the Pew organization will tell you the normal figure is about 20%. Uh, we don't evangelize, that's not the point. We teach, uh, and we teach the, the broad cultural history of the Western world in all the major categories. Um, they also have a 10% probability of finding a spouse, and I don't think there's a better way to find a spouse than first enjoying one another as thinking people, and then finding you fall in love, and that's wonderful, because then you've got a spouse who can stand up to you, and you need that, especially academic and Intelligent people need a spouse who can handle them. I have one. Um, that's been her rather um, demanding job for a long while to keep me in order. She's pretty good at it. As Chesterton says, uh, anybody who thinks women are stupid has never been married. Uh, they are incredibly loyal, but they know you better than anyone else, and they'll have no compunction about telling you so. And that is true. That's what a good wife does. Uh, with horses for courses, and by and large, there's overlap, but there's biases, there's 
Jordan Peterson would say, yes, there's overlap, but do a little multivariate analysis. We're different. So uh, we, had, we had no money, so the advertising that brought the students in, and half our students were American, was in fact me and my travels, which had been uh, brought about really by David Stevens. So David Stevens should claim to be one of the founders of Augustine College, although he's never been there. And uh, so about 70% of the students come because of a medical connection, which leads back to me. Uh, so uh, very shortly, American docs would say, really appreciate what you've done for our son or our daughter. And then they say, what are you, when are you going to do something for us? <laughs> say, well, I've basically written you off as irredeemable, but you have one thing I need, your money. What would you pay? And Americans are they're the most practical people on earth. They're one of the first, the only nation I know that uh, asks you whether you give a talk and then without asking you, ask what your fee is. The Brits think if it's Christian, well, you won't want a fee, we'll pay your expenses, especially evangelicals. But the Americans, you know, they no. right from the beginning, I say, no, we, we think we need you for quite a while, so uh, we need to pay. And I say, well, I, I like to be able to go to Africa and I like to be able to talk, give pro-life and not even need to ask for uh, travel costs. But uh, so if you're honest about that, if you like what I do, why wouldn't you pay me at roughly the same hourly rate that you get paid yourself? That's fine. Well, so I'll leave it to you. And I've done that ever since. Um, but they said, as for you, uh, we could do a summer program for you. And we'd take the current program for the kids and turn it into a more adult version. It would take about six or seven years to get through all the material on a, on a one week a year basis. I said, that sounds like a good idea. Could you get CME credits for ethics? I said, we ought to be able to, and we have done. So that means they can write the whole thing off tax because every American physician has to get some credits in continuing medical education for ethics, which is largely a ripoff. Um, uh, and it costs them money. They have to close the shop and go to expensive conference, hotel bills, all the rest. So we can save them quite a lot of money. And they've been very generous to us ever since. I mean, they are the major donors. Doctors as a group are the major donors for the college. And what's unique about this course is uh, until uh, now, for, since the beginning, we had six, I think it was, six or seven docs who'd been every year. They're missed. We've only got one left now because of age and disease and the rest. But uh, there'll still be one this coming summer who's already signed up, who is in charge, basically, of rural health for Labrador, you know. He knows what polar bears are and the like. But uh, so we divided it up into groups, and it, it is a joy to teach it. They arrive on Sunday night, and it's like homecoming every year because at least 50% of the docs there will have been before. So any newcomers are immediately welcomed into the family. And what's really lovely about it is that... Uh, they can have a week in which they can talk freely without any worry that bureaucrats are going to accuse them of breaching HIPAA regulations or some equally stupid and counterproductive uh, bureaucratically driven nonsense. Uh, they're free. Uh, and it's very good for their soul.
that's I don't know another conference that does that, uh, and they love us. Uh, that's a proper use of the word, I think. So uh, this year, uh, at the end of uh, May, uh, beginning of June, we will be doing the next one, and uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about uh, the talk. One of the talks I'm going to give, and uh, I'll do it in a, a somewhat unusual way here. Uh, uh, I've currently labelled the talk An Age of Ethical Chaos. And I introduce it with 10 points very quickly as a background that you need to be able to engage in this subject. And then uh, I took those 10 points and put them into uh, these new AI chat boxings, whatever they're called, and uh, to see whether it could handle it. Here are the points that I want will, will be my opening points. First, most cultures have found a space for respected or feared people to whom they go when they are sick. Uh, all cultures have a medicine man, a, a herbalist, or a doctor. With few exceptions, like removing bladder stones, they were not very effective in purely practical terms, like extending life. Until the 1860s, when antiseptic surgery and germ theory began to ignite a science-based revolution, you didn't actually gain anything material by going to the doctor. In fact, you were slightly more likely to die than the people who didn't. Uh, you went because they knew about disease and they could tell you whether your current anxieties about your health were justified or not. They were, for, up until the 19th century, doctors primarily... Before, were there to give people a sense of what their life was likely to be and how long it was likely to be so they could make appropriate responses. Um, Hippocratic physicians in the, uh, the fifth century before Christ uh, committed themselves to four principles. I think they did it because they'd watched their neighbors killing patients, their colleagues, for profit. And that will happen to us now as we go back to being pagan in this respect. And they wanted to make medicine better, and they realized that one way to do that was to increase the level of trust between them and the patients. And they did it by basically committing themselves to four principles. The first was a, a commitment to a belief in transcendence. And I can say to doctors now, and I can say to you listening to me, if your doctor does not fear judgment after death, are you rationally likely to trust him more or less? Now, that's a no-brainer the moment you think about it. There is a conflict of interest. And where there is a conflict of interest, the interest will beat the duty, at least sometimes. And if they can get away with it, and doctors can, it will increase. Because money changes hands when people die. And the beneficiaries have sometimes got itchy palms. They need the money now. If Uncle George doesn't... If, uh, survive the illness he's got with you, you might get a Mercedes or even a Ford Taurus. You know, they're, they're corruptible. So that they understood that. So they wouldn't teach, they said, they wouldn't teach medicine to people who didn't have a fear of transcendence and judgment after death. Uh, they recognized that medicine was essentially a moral activity. They recognized that not killing was the way to make this explicit to the people around them. And they demanded that their rights of conscience be respected. You didn't have to go to them, but they'd laid out who they were and what they were. 
Now, those four principles, they're a minority group. It took centuries for them to become dominant, but they did. They fitted well with Christianity uh, from somewhere around the time of Christ until the, the 19th, perhaps 18th century. There was no real attack on, on those principles. And I'll go on and explain how the attack came about and what it meant. But the ideas that we call principles have consequences. And if you haven't read Richard Weaver's book, uh, Ideas Have Consequences, do so, because he's an American author, wrote a very small book that shook up the University of Chicago and academe about 50 years ago. Um, nowadays, we have now reached the stage where I've had many emails about young doctors in particular coming under attack for resisting uh, killing patients and refusing to do it. Some have lost their job because they were not very smart in the way they went about it. Uh, conscience rights were utterly disregarded in Obamacare, and the history of medicine is not taught with any sense of it being a moral activity. Uh, physicians have been silenced for dissent. Uh, just look at what happened to Jay Bhattacharya in the COVID thing and uh, and Malone, and now they've been vindicated. Uh, it's quite clear that we were manipulated, and those that had the, the science and the courage to say so have not even been apologised to. They should be. I haven't heard an apology. There will be cases going to court, so maybe we'll get financial apology. I don't know. <laughs> There are some little signs of hope. The closure of the Tavistock Clinic, perhaps, is an exception. But moral relativism, this is point nine I've got to now, is assumed to be true even without acknowledging its inherent logical fallacies. In, uh, one of our graduates went off to pre-med, and the first slide in pre-med was a in electron multicultural medicine, and the first slide said, there are no absolutes. His hand went up immediately, and the lecturer said, do you have a question? He said, yes, sir. Is that sentence internally consistent? Moral and epistemological uh, relativism it is intrinsically incoherent. If you can't see that, you need to think about it till you do, because it's important. If there is no absolute truth out there, we will inevitably be reduced to procedures and protocols. And they are a reductionistic exercise. And people will be killed by them because they're not sufficiently flexible. That's where we're at. My summary of that history is McIntyre was right when in After Virtue in the early 80s, he showed that we have destroyed the category of virtue and replaced it with practice, with procedures and protocols, which are philosophically in the context of medicine, particularly sophomoric. Now, it's going to take me an hour or more to, to give some background to that, but we've got a week to talk about it, so that's fine. Uh, as much happens as we go off and have meals together as does otherwise. But here is what AI did to it. It uh, gave the 10 points again, but they're not the same. In the secular world, the elites are often judged by a combination of different institutions and individuals. These might include the media, political parties, civil society and organizations, watchdogs, and even the general public. Amazing. 
but no mention of religion at all, no mention of the long cultural history of the Western world. The statement, all truth is personal, is a philosophical position known as relativism. Relativism holds that truth is subjective and varies from person to person, culture to culture. However, this position is problematic uh, because it leads to a question of whether the statement itself is true, which would require an objective standard of truth. That's as close as they get. The postmodern perspective emphasizes, immediately moving on, the power, of the power dynamics at play in society and argues that knowledge is constructed through language, culture, and power relations. This view challenges the idea of, the, of objective truth and instead focuses on how different groups in society have different experiences, perspectives. I won't go on, but you can see that that's a thoroughly woke document. It's allegedly derived from the 10 that I gave it to work with. That's not a translation. This is ideologically driven, and if you haven't if you didn't believe it before, hopefully you do now. I won't uh, abuse you by reading uh, the others, but... You say it's for doctors. Do you ever find that other people also attend? Oh, and they bring their friends. But doctors, there's a financial incentive for doctors to come because they can take some money off the government. Uh, but, yeah, we've had lawyers come. We've had uh, doctors bring their intelligent, just pre-university kids with them who have then come along to us afterwards. Um, yeah, we're open to other people, um, but you will it will have a medical slant, but that's okay. But there'll be literature, there'll be theology, there will be philosophy, uh, there'll be science, uh, and there'll be ethics. We only do two lectures a day, uh, about an hour's length, followed by Q&A. So typically they'll come after breakfast and we'll do a lecture, we'll have coffee, and then we'll question usually to midday. And then I say, well, go off, make sure nobody's left alone, and uh, go on up by lunch. There's plenty of restaurants around, which are where we're located. We're four blocks from Parliament, Capitol Hill in your terms. Um, and they come back, not in the afternoon, but at five o'clock we meet either in the college or in a ethnic restaurant and have a, just the main course and come back have another lecture and then dessert and coffee and whatever and talk till you want to go to bed and we do that for five days and then those that can stay for the weekend uh, are invited to our farm uh, after a leisurely breakfast in town and uh, we come and debrief and uh, wander around the farm and talk, and then we go off for a thoroughly decadent meal in a very nice restaurant, which is about 15 minutes from our farm. And uh, they give us our own room in the restaurants, and uh, then somewhere around 11 o'clock, people wander back to Ottawa and fly away on Sunday home. So uh, it's a lovely week. It's the best week of my year. Um, I wish there'd been something like it when I was young, but I would probably have been too. Uh, our, arrogant uh, to take a break from what I was doing. Hopefully that's enough to encourage those of you who are uh, struggling, and I know many of you are. Uh, how do you talk back to a culture that's losing its way at the rate that we are? Thank you guys for watching. We hope you really enjoyed this special podcast about this event. If you're interested in attending, you can check the links in the description down below and sign up for that. And just again, the dates for that event are going to be Sunday, May 28th through Saturday, June 3rd. Thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next week on Wednesday for our regular scheduled episodes.